The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Jen Wheeling. She is a holistic rancher, regenerative farmer, and one of several of the James family siblings who live and operate agricultural enterprises on James Ranch. The James Ranch is just north of Durango, Colorado. The 400-acre ranch has been in the James family since 1961 and is now home to the original owners, four of their five grown children, and many grandchildren. So this is a multi-generational ranch. Each family has their own business on the land and is responsible for its success. The James family raises pasture-fed and finished cattle. They grow flowers and vegetables. They have a tree operation, a dairy and cheese-making business, and a successful market and grill where they sell products from the ranch and from neighboring farmers and artisans. Now, while each farm operation is owned and operated separately, each enhances the other, and that's really what makes this ranch magical. Jen, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio. It's really nice to be here. I had the opportunity to visit your ranch in the middle of July when much of the country was suffering with very high temperatures. And I found your ranch to be quite idyllic and eye-opening in terms of what a ranch and what a food system could look like with the right plan. But why don't you tell me a little bit about your history and what made you come back to the ranch and join this operation? It was about early 1990s, and I had been away from college and then got married, and we were moving about. And we learned that my dad and mom had reached a point where they couldn't manage the ranch and had decided that maybe they would just go ahead and sell the place, turn the place into a golf course and housing development. And we had all sat down and talked about this and looked at each other and said, so what are you going to do with your portion of the proceeds? And as we thought about that, we were like, well, we'll buy a place like this. And then it just was this light bulb moment, like, wait a minute, if that's what we're going to do, why are we thinking of changing this? So we all had to make a pretty interesting decision to how do we support the idea of keeping it in agriculture. And in my case, it was our children were young and it was time to move home. I needed to raise them in this same place. I didn't really understand how to raise children in the city and, and all of the different activities there, but I understood 4-H. I understood open space and letting them be able to run free and explore. And so we had to contemplate what we would do because the folks were excited to think that we would all come back. It's just they said, bring an enterprise because we can't afford to pay you. And as each family member wrapped their head around that, it was just this really great opportunity for us to say, what would I do if I was able to choose my 
activity. And in my case, it was organic farming, and so it was an easy thing to contemplate. It wasn't an easy thing to do. <laughs> that's, that's how it works, right? Right. Well, I think it's so interesting that this rich food-producing area could have been turned into a golf course and housing development is pretty scary because I think we take for granted that food is always going to be available to us, and yet your ranch is feeding your region. Yes, it is now, and historically speaking, the Animus Valley was the breadbasket for our region. They fed between potatoes and apples and beef and hay. The miners up in Silverton, it was the backhaul for the train heading to Silverton loaded down with food for all of the individuals up there in the late 18 and early 1900s. Eventually, the farms in, or the orchards were famous for all the apples and produce that they produced that were shipped around through northern New Mexico and around to Pueblo and the eastern slope of Colorado. But I think it's an idyllic location. It's really beautiful here. We're in the middle of the San Juan Mountains, and we have these iconic red cliffs that we look at every day. And people come here and fall in love with Durango and its climate and its resources, both from the activities, the mountain biking and skiing and all that kind of thing, but also it's still small enough to feel like a community. And I think in my lifetime, I've seen it explode in houses and influences from the outside world and people all need to eat. So I think when it came to that golf course decision, we were a little bit in competition with another family ranch down the road from us. And and in actuality, I think when the siblings learned that this was on the plate to go into a golf course and we put the brakes on, the other family went ahead and finished. And so there is a golf course just down the road, and they have 18-hole golf course and many homes. So I think in hindsight, it was who was going to survive, because at the time, the real estate market wasn't much, and dad and mom were in a tough situation. And I think when we made that decision to keep this land in agriculture, it was a little scary because it was an easy answer selling it for real estate. It was harder to keep it in agriculture. And we just all buckled up and figured it out. Ironically, you're feeding all of those people that are playing golf and living on that former (laughs) ranch. Well, No, they are our best customers. Because we did end up putting, the at this point, two-thirds of the ranch is in a conservation easement. And I think that there's a lot of people who look at this place as the last open space and as development encroaches all around us. So it is one of those valued things when people say, what's most important to you? Oh, open space. Well, good, (laughs) because this is it. Right. Well, I should set the stage also when I mention mid-July. In order for me to get from my home in Missouri to Durango, Colorado, we had to drive through Kansas and Western Kansas and Eastern Colorado are known for their feedlots. And I did some research prior to our conversation, and I found that one of the largest feedlots in our country is located in Colorado, and they have 100,000 head of cattle on the same acreage that you have, 400 acres. So 
tell me how many cattle you have on your ranch. We have at our maximum so far, I think we've been up to 195 head, and that's just the beef. We have, I think he's up to about 40 head of dairy cows, my brother, and we don't use the entire ranch for the, the two cattle operations represent roughly 80% of the ranch. We also have the tree farm, the vegetable farm, and then you factor in the area where the market and the grill are and things like that. So I think we're using like 350 acres for the respective dairy and beef operations. But man, that's a, that's a lot of cattle to jam into 400 acres and I mean, it's just an entirely different mindset. The fact that our cattle have bait, they don't get sick because they've got open space and bright sunshine and green grass and fresh water. And we don't have the complications that an operation that holds 100,000 cattle in one space at one time. I don't know that the world understands that that's not healthy or the animals, it's not healthy for the humans because when you're that tight, then there's antibiotics that become mandatory in order to get those animals to survive. And those antibiotics get passed on to the humans who eat the food. So it's a little heartbreaking. And it's hard. I mean, I know when you drove through that the smell was horrible, Mm -hmm. probably. Oh, the stench. (laughs) You cannot hold your nose long enough to get through that region. And in addition that stench also transfers. And so you think about not only the health of people who have to work in that environment, let alone the animal health, but you think about the neighboring communities and how those individuals must feel trapped because they face that stench every day that impacts our health. It impacts our water quality. You have chosen not to use commercial fertilizers, herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, or hormones for decades on your ranch, and yet you still manage to have a healthy operation, a healthy herd. You are grass-fed and finished, so there's no corn, whereas the animals on the feedlot are receiving food that they were not meant to consume. Tell me about why you made the decision to raise animals like this. I think that there was a time when my parents who started the beef business looked at what was our greatest resource. And in our situation, we have two fantastic resources, cool season grasses that are native species that are perennial, come up and do their job every year, and we are irrigated. So we are very fortunate to have an abundant source of water. And so the idea that what could we do with all of this cool season grass in the early 90s, 100% grass fed and finished wasn't even a concept. I mean, people were like, you can't possibly finish an animal just on grass. And my folks said, we're going to try. So they went to lots of conferences and different places in the world, that New Zealand and, and around, trying to learn how could they possibly make this work. And it was a lot of trial and error and learning how long that it was going to take longer to finish the animal. Most of those feedlots are finishing animals at 15 to 18 months, and ours will finish between 24 and 29 months. So you have to configure your beef operation differently when you're holding an animal for an extra year. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that by having it be open, like fresh grass, bright blue skies, very little stress on the livestock, we work them on foot, there's no ATVs and no herding with horses or dogs or anything. These animals adapt to being called when it's time to go to fresh grass. There is a sound that our fellow makes that they all follow him because they know that that is the call for fresh feed. It's a very harmonious, wonderful thing. Yeah. So it's a huge contrast to 100,000 animals. I think harmonious is the exact word that was on the tip of my tongue when I thought about how I felt when I was on your ranch. Jen, we are halfway through, so let me take one break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Jen Wheeling. She is a holistic rancher, regenerative farmer, and one of several of the James family siblings who live and operate agricultural enterprises on the James Ranch, just 10 miles north of Durango, Colorado. One of the things that I learned about your ranch that I thought was worthy of mentioning to our listeners is that you were introduced to the concept of holistic management. I want to talk about holistic management and what that is, because I think that it's difficult. As you mentioned, it was hard getting into this operation and figuring out exactly how you were going to manage the animals and the land. How did you learn about holistic management and what is it? Okay. So my parents in the early 90s were facing a crossroads for the whole golf course thing, and they were introduced to holistic management by a friend of the family who basically said, in holistic management, you create three goals, quality of life goal, future resource-based goal, and financial goals. And by creating these goals, you're setting a framework for how you're going to make decisions about the land, about your life, and about your finances. And this framework was what my parents needed because dad and mom had always been in charge and they made the decision. I mean, it's just a very typical agricultural, patriarchal kind of setup. And I think that when holistic management said, if you want to live like this, then this is how you're going to achieve that goal. And it gave them the opportunity to say, okay, this decision doesn't match our goal, so we can't use that. We have to figure out a way to match our goal. And I think then my siblings and I looked at it and said, so we all get a voice and we all have to agree that this is how we're going to do it. And instead of being one person and everybody else follows what they say, it's all of us making decisions by consensus and agreeing to do the work together. And I think that's what saved the ranch because dad was used to making the decisions, but I think he was fearful of making such huge decisions. And by holistic management, dispelled that fear. And we all are in it together. Right. Another thing about your ranch, well, there are several things about your ranch that I find really attractive and why I wanted to have you on with me is that this is such a fantastic national model. You have been able to keep young people on the land, and each year you take in an apprentice from the Quivera Coalition's new agrarian training program so that you are passing along your knowledge of regenerative farming. And yet most young people who are getting degrees in agriculture 
I don't think they're trained in this holistic management way, at least if I understand what I see as the land-grant college educational programs. Would you agree with that? I would say yes to that. Holistic management got started, I think it got started back in the 70s, and its presentation was, you know, Alan Savory is an amazing individual from South Africa who had this idea about grazing and how grazing was going to emulate the wild populations in Africa and how we in so many different continents are not following this idea of animal impact and moving livestock quickly through grassy areas. If you can imagine the American bison or the gazelles and zebras that just are on a constant move and spreading their manure and stomping it into the ground and disturbing the ground. Anyway, it became a I think there were a lot of people who, it threw modern technological agriculture against the wall and said, you're not doing it right. And it offended a lot, a lot of people in big agriculture that somebody would say, what you've been doing all these years is actually detrimental to our world. And so, you know, nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. And so people kind of put a barrier up against it. So in the land-grant agriculture schools, holistic management as a grazing technology isn't something that people want to support. But I think that we're starting to see holistic management morph a little bit and become more about how to reclaim the land that has been abused by overgrazing and the methodologies historically taught in some schools. And I'm excited as young people come to us and they say, my grandfather has done it this way forever and he won't consider a change. So I'm coming to you to learn so that when my grandfather passes, I have something to go back to and I can start working there. And we've had this time and again. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also understandable. You can't ask someone who's dedicated their whole life to a way of doing it to instantly change. But it's for the good of the land I'm grateful that we have young people who are starting to see that there is an alternative. The other thing that you had mentioned to me when we were visiting on the ranch was that because what your parents were doing was different from everyone else, and that in itself is hard to do, to be different from the rest of the community, your parents were laughed at. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, and that's hard. Yeah, it takes a certain amount of stubbornness to be laughed at and continue on, so... That would be us. And I think that what was tricky was the day that Dad got back a soul sample and was working with an individual who was an out-of-the-box thinker, and he said, you know what, you need to add salt to your ground. And Dad was like, okay, we'll add salt. So he goes to the feed store, and the guy was like, wait, you're adding salt? And he's like, yep, my soul sample says I need salt, and my consultant tells me I need salt. And they were like, whatever. They gave him the salt, and... When he added it, the grass responded, and it was the right thing to do. But he had to endure a certain amount of ridicule from the old boys at the feed store because he was a crazy guy adding salt to his ground. And nobody knew what was going to happen. Dad didn't know what was going to happen. He just had faith in what this fellow was telling him. And I think now that we can say we've been in the cattle business for operating as 100% grass-fed and finished for 30 years, 
that maybe we're starting to have a little bit of time on our side. Right. And the things that we're doing are proving to be good for our land. And to the people who laughed at you, you had said something really beautiful, and that was, well, we'll just let time be the teacher, and time is going to tell our story. And lo and behold, three decades later, you've got a fantastic operation. I sat on your patio. I could see the cattle in the distance, and there was no stench. The land smelled sweetly. I wanted to be there. I wanted to linger. You are protecting the planet and the climate. And I'm really saddened by what has happened in the nutrition community when we seem to be so black and white. You know, you either eat meat or you don't. We have to save the planet and not eat meat. And yet I want to say, wait a second, there's meat and then there's meat. There's meat Uh from that feedlot and it's horrible. And you can see why it is non-sustainable and why the animals are dying in the heat and how it's dusty and dirty. But then there's your ranch, and it's a completely different environment, and I want to eat meat from your ranch. You give us an example of what could be. The other thing that you're doing that I think is remarkable is through the market that your sister operates, you are supporting regional farmers. You're giving them a place to sell their produce. You're giving artisans a place to sell their work. So you are an economic driver in your region, whereas in so many small communities that you go through in whatever rural state you're in, you see little crumbling ghost towns. And yet I think the answer to economic security and food security is through the food system. And your ranch is the example of how to do that. Mm, Thank you. Yeah, we are very grateful to our community for helping us continue on our dream. And I think that historically speaking, back to the market real quick, we were limited to only being able to sell our products because of our land use policies in our county. And so for 18 or 20 some years, that was all we could do. And then we just had to grow. It became a a thing that we just had to do. And so we built the new market and the new restaurant in 2019. And with about 800 square feet of space, we looked around and we had to be zoned commercial at that point. So we went through the whole process, built the building, and now we have 800 square feet that I can't possibly put enough vegetables in there on my own year-round. And we had always struggled with the fact that the farmer's market runs from mid-May to the end of October, but what are those farmers doing in the wintertime? And how are they making ends meet? And as we started thinking about our market versus other markets, it was like, wait a minute, we could give them a place to put their products, we could encourage them to grow, we could help them find financial footing by giving them a consistent outlet for their products all year long, not just on a Saturday morning and not just in the summertime. And then we started having meat producers who produce pork and who produce lamb and chicken and bison all come to us and say, can we use you as an outlet? And we're like, yes. So what blesses one blesses all theory, we are the living example of that. We've just been so grateful that we are in a place where the people are supporting us and all of these regional producers. It's an outpouring of love and gratitude for sure. 
I have to ask how COVID impacted the regional Uh, food system and your farm, because I don't think this is going to be our last pandemic. And I think that what COVID has done, at least from my perspective, is that it has forced us or it should have forced us to look more closely at where we get our food and how vulnerable the food supply chain is. I think it's a huge point, and I, I'm so hoping that our society saw the challenges that something like what we've lived through in COVID it presents to our food security. When all of those meat packers had to shut down because of COVID, and all those head of hogs, I can't remember the number, but hundreds and hundreds of hogs, because of the production of hogs is such a you know, there's a timetable and they reach a certain point and they get killed and then that. But if you can't kill them, now what do you do with them? And they wasted all of that livestock and all of that food because it didn't fit their production model. Oh, my gosh, so heartbreaking. So in our situation, we, as the beef people, have a USDA facility just 20 miles from us. And so very small. They only butcher eight head a day. But they are right here and they are super small so they could be very thoughtful and careful about their processes and they never had to shut down. We demonstrated to our community and the grocery store shelves went empty for hamburger and all of a sudden people panicked that there was going to be a food shortage. And then they discovered us and we were able to give them assurance that not only is this the best product on the market, but it is here and it's available. We did have a funny moment that all of the restaurants shut down and we supplied at the time like three or four restaurants in town with burger and we pack it in five pound chubs for those restaurants and they closed. So we had all these five pound chubs and people were buying 20 pounds of burger at a time and, you know, 20 pound boxes. And I told my husband, you know, we should just sell these jobs for the wholesale price and help our community and then let it be a good thing for everybody. And so he kind of gave me a little business about that. Nobody's going to buy a five-pound tub of hamburger. That's too much. When the first day we put it up in the market, we sold 400 pounds. Wow. So we ended up helping families who were worried, you know, big families who would come in and buy 25-pound boxes five-pound chub, go home and make enough lasagna to stick in the freezer and have for the whole summer. Things like that were happening. I think that COVID exposed us to more people who are now recognize what we mean to our community and what we mean to food security. And hopefully more people are going to start demanding that they have this kind of food security I mean, it's a drum we beat on our tours, and any time we get a chance to talk, is go back to your communities and figure out how to make this happen, because the grocery stores and the big packers and the big feedlots, it's not sustainable. Exactly. Jen, unfortunately, we are out of time, but you have hey. given us such a fantastic vision of what food and farming could be. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Jen Wheeling, 
holistic rancher, regenerative farmer, and one of several of the James family siblings who live and operate agricultural enterprises on James Ranch, just north of Durango, Colorado. To learn more about the ranch, go to www.jamesranch.net, and I will provide a link to that. Jen, thank you for your time today and for helping us see a more healthful food system. Thank you, Melinda. It's been a pleasure.